Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. WWE legend Mick Foley is the subject of a brand new documentary tomorrow night on A&E. I spoke with him about his iconic Hell in a Cell match against The Undertaker. Mick, thanks so much for joining us. This is an honor. Hey, it's a pleasure. That warm summer's night in the igloo, 1998, Hell in the Cell with Undertaker. You had an ongoing program with Taker with the Boiler Room Brawl and the Buried Alive with the little carry hand sneaking up out of the grave. And Take me sort of into how you and Taker had already built a, a psychology together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one really infamous night. Like, I had no idea how important that night was going to turn out to be. And uh, it struck me as an odd choice for me and Taker is we uh, had kind of been all over the country and the world in 96 and 97, and it was almost like thrown together. Like, I was like, really, you want me? And, uh, like a semi-main event, Austin and Kane and the other one. And so it didn't seem to have a ton of build to it. It didn't seem to be the <laughs> great choice. <laughs> uh, but we had that chemistry, and that night, you know, uh, kind of fate... <laughs> Was either with with us or against us, you know, led led to a series of really, really bizarre, surreal circumstances, and uh, and the fact that we kind of lived through it made that night take on a you know a life of its own. I know Sean and Taker had done the original Hell in the Cell, one of Taker's favorite matches ever, and Kane came out, all that stuff. But so with with that being the the bar, such a high bar set, are you and uh, Taker's thinking, hey, we have to top this? Is that is that why you guys went for that first first bump? Because the first one was planned and the second one wasn't. Yeah, I um, I hate to say planned, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was thought of. Uh, I watched I watched the first one with uh, Terry Funk, and it was just it was just an amazing match. And I was not like an incredibly gifted athlete. You know, I was not a great climber, not a great pull-up guy. Like all the things you need to really excel in that type of match yeah. were not my strengths. Uh, and I just said, what the heck am I going to do? And then Terry said, I think you ought to start the match on top of the cell. <laughs> and we just started like brainstorming with these ludicrous ideas. And we're laughing about how impossible <laughs> they all sounded. And then I just turned to him and I said, I think I could do it. Yeah. Uh, and so we just had this really, you know, a way of starting a match that had never been done. And, uh, you know, I mean, the idea of starting a match that appeared... <laughs> Like a match that appears to end in 10 seconds. <laughs> How important was the Jim Ross call there? You know, as God is my witness, he's broken in half. And then to me, the real goosebump part was you on the stretcher and, oh, my God, he's going back up. Yeah, when I got off that stretcher, you know, and they, first of all, we didn't know, you know, Jim didn't know what was going down in the match, so he was calling it from the heart. 
I had no idea what he had said. I remember when I got home from uh, from that that tour, just laying in bed and watching it over and over. Like I just could not believe <laughs> what had taken place, and then and also that immortal call, you know, with God as my witness, He's been broken in half. Like I think, you know, if it wasn't for like you know a, a certain you know a certain little bias among you know purists. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in the sporting world, like that would be one of the acknowledges one of the greatest calls of all time, and I think it already is. Probably the greatest, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even when like uh, a soccer game is six to one, you know, they'll have Jim Ross go, well, "Somebody <laughs> stop the damn match!" You know, uh, it's just uh, it's just become part of pop culture, yeah. and uh, you know, and, with, and the match has as well. So it's hard to imagine that match with a different call. It just would not have been the same. Now that second bump, obviously, that one kind of took you guys by surprise, and then the cage broke away. In case some of our listeners don't know, yeah, the bottom fell out on us literally. You know, the bottom, <laughs> well, actually, the top fell out on us. Yeah, and you went through the top, slammed the mat, chair hit you, knocked your tooth through your nose. How long were you actually out? When do you remember regaining consciousness? Yeah, I think it was forty-two seconds wow. that I was unconscious, and that to me is like the uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, kind of the irony of professional wrestling, you know, that's considered like, ah, it's the, it's the fake sport and all that. Like, I, I'll grant you, you know, certain things about it, but tell me one of your real sports that continues when one of the participants is no longer conscious, you know, like, right. you don't take a time out, you just, you try to buy time, and of course, that would not be the case now. We've learned so much about concussions that that match sure. would have been called, you know, at that moment, boom, done. But the fact that we continued is kind of what uh, added to its allure. And I'm just amazed by it at the end of it, though, just how you're able not only to finish with the thumbtacks and everything, but my little part that maybe a lot of mainstream fans don't realize is after he hits the tombstone on you, you do a little mini kick out, like you're still just trying to get out. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's those yeah, little kick, things that tell the story. Kick my right leg. Like yeah. I, I was still trying. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, legend has it the fans gave me a standing ovation afterwards. Uh, uh, I I would go back. It was like it was a smattering of polite applause. Like <laughs> uh, it, it just it seemed to just grow in the days and weeks and months and years and to this point even decades. To the point where it's just amazing. There was no. I mean, the internet was kind of in its infancy. You know, nobody was texting or sure. tweeting links to each other. So it took, kind of took a while to grow in stature, and, uh, and so now I do appearances, and it's just stunning to me that about 50% of the people who talked to me about that match weren't even alive when it took place. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so after that match, I mean, you'd already put in your time and years in the business, but after that and all those hellacious bumps, I mean, you were on track to win the title, but it happened later in that December on Raw. Take me into that night. I know it was you and Rock. You had DX and the corporation, all that out there, and everyone talks about that huge Austin pop when he comes out to, you know, lay the rock out with the chair. But at the same time, don't you think it was so many of the fans were finally happy to see you win it? I think that's part of the eruption, you know? A, A, Stone Cold's coming out, but B, this means Foley might finally do it. You're trying to put a very polite twist. There, <laughs> trying to give you credit, man. Night there. Uh, yeah, and there's no better way than to make a surprise entrance than by having your entrance music hit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to come out, hit my music. Uh, it didn't seem to matter. Those details didn't seem to matter. It was enormous. Yeah, I think there was the realization, like, this might really happen. Uh, you know, Vince McMahon had really stacked the deck against me. The Rock was his guy. 
you know, where the ring was surrounded. It was a lumberjack match. Uh, DX had kind of taken me under their wing as kind of an unofficial member. And it was just like all the uh, stars <laughs> were in alignment that day. And, uh, yeah, I did I one with uh, Steve's help, and the res- response was just, you know, it was it was incredible. And then uh, everything that happened after the three count was all ad lib, yeah. you know. Um, Michael Cole and the, sleeping on the floors of Motel 6s. <laughs> you know, Michael Cole gave a great call. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the underrated things, and he had he yeah. worked really hard on it, and, uh, and he was, uh, you know, he was as big a part of that night as Jr. was of. Uh, well, all right, okay, maybe not quite as big. <laughs> it's right. almost sacrilege. Right, right, right. Uh, but but Michael was great on that call, and it was something he was really proud of, and I was you know really happy to have him there for it. Absolutely. Talk about how that sort of turned the tide in the Monday Night Wars. I know I've seen you do interviews before where the the WCW announcer said because you guys were pre-taping Raw at that point, and he said that'll yeah, really put yeah. butts in the seats, and 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 it really did. It, it kind of backfired, and you guys yeah, really won the backfired big time. On them and uh, and it's it's nice that you know Eric Bischoff and Tony Giovanni will admit okay we may have you know misfired on that one <laughs> actually I was just uh, on a show with Eric a couple nights ago and they were like you know just you guys are gonna be in the ring together just kind of you know come up with a little something so I you know made like I was gonna make a big problem let me tell you something Bischoff when you gave away you know the you know the announcement you whispered in Giovanni's ear that uh, Mick Foley was winning the uh, title and told him to say that, put a lot of butts in seats. Uh, you know, there's something I've been wanting to say to you for a long time, and it's about time I got it off my chest. They got right in his face, and they went, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, you made get, me you... a bigger star overnight, you know? So, yeah, yeah without, without those guys giving away the finish, uh, there's no 500,000 <laughs> fans simultaneously flipping channels. And, the, the, you know, the strange thing is I just talked about the ad lib, you know, the stuff after the match. Uh, right after the win, there was a like a there was a huge exodus to WCW because they had that huge main event at the Georgia Dome live, so they had something people wanted to see. Right, right. It's just that uh, you know, Shivani and uh, Tony and Eric kind of let people know that there might be something they'd like to see even more. Absolutely, and so- <laughs> on the other channel. Yeah, it was it was a big big night for us. Absolutely. And of course, your opponent that night, you guys launch into a feud, you and The Rock, uh, a feud that became a friendship. But uh, everyone remembers, you know, obviously the I Quit match and all those chair shots. But I mean, people forget that even before you won the title, uh, there was the Survivor Series screw job. You kind of recreated the Brett Sean thing with when he became yeah. the corporate champ. And uh, you did the Super Bowl empty arena. You did the St. Valentine's Day massacre where you both knocked each other out simultaneously, like Rocky II. I remember it all. It and, was the Rocky II finish. Yeah. yeah, we did uh, November, December, January, February, and then uh, Mania, you know, five straight pay-per-views. And then we went on, you know, eight months later, whatever it was, to, you know, to team up and, uh, cre- you know, and really create some good memories for people. I think that Rock and Sock thing was still one of the most watched Rawls ever, right? Which is so crazy because it's so outside the norm. How did you guys think, like, hey, go with us on this? That this is your life thing. Well, I mean, credit goes to Vince Russo, actually, for coming up with the idea but he knew that you just you, you know you, here's the here's the basic structure, and then you guys have fun. And uh, I remember they had the actors, local actors in North Carolina, like they're ready to run lines. Like, okay, what do you want to do? And I had I brought Dwayne over, and I went, I'll say something, and uh, Rock will come out and say something, and then I'll call you out. I'll say something, and and he, one of them looked at us, and said, "Is this how you do it?" And Rock was like, "Yeah, that's how we do it." So. 
you know, it turned out we did, went like 14 extra minutes on live primetime <laughs> <laughs> you know, TV. Mr. McMahon was seething that, you know, like a 12 or 14 minute segment went 26 or 28. And he, did, he, he thought it was an awful segment. But again, this is back in the days before, you know, Twitter and even texting. So the only thing we could figure out is that people had, fans had to actually be calling their friends and going, you have to watch. You have to watch WWE. There was no other way to make you know to account for the huge uh, increase in viewership. What made working with The Rock so great? You guys were, I mean, I, I'd, I've heard him talk in in hindsight, and even I think there was some like four way tag match that he you thought he wouldn't only come back for a big occasion, and the fact that he thought of you in that light. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. I mean, I knew that we'd had uh, great matches together. I knew that uh, we'd had uh, great chemistry, and, and then you know made people really. Uh, I, I I get this comment from time to time, and it's just. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's beyond flattering when someone will go out of their way and go, like, I want you to know I was going through a really tough time. And they'll point to that that pairing more than anything else as something that cheered them up, brought them around, gave them something to look forward to. But neither of us knew that what we were doing was anything special. Like, we talked about it years later. And I just, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I thought, I never thought The Rock uh, considered me to be on the level of some of those other opponents he had and so when i got the call asking if i would you know what i thought about teaming up with the rock in 2004 i said well that sounds great but i'd seen it in writing and said he would only come back for anything something big right i said it sounds great to me but i was told he would only come back for something <laughs> big <laughs> and uh brian gewertz who now runs the rock's production company was like yeah rock thinks this is big and uh, he does, you know, and then I would see things, you know, in interviews he did later on and he, on uh, uh, his own uh, DVD that WWE did where he talked so highly of me. And I didn't I didn't know it at the time. So it was really nice, especially given, you know, how his <laughs> 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 we might be talking about the next president of the United States uh, <laughs> that he has a good, you know, thinks to me pretty highly. That, that's got to feel great. I need to know about Mr. Sacco, because you've been doing Mandible Claw for a while, and it, you know, it's, a, it's a fascinating move, unique move in itself, but when did you get the idea, I know it was during the Austin McMahon bedpan segment, which was hysterical, but when did you get the idea of, hey, I'm going to take the Mandible Claw and put a sock over it? Most fans just think, hey, yeah, that's a disgusting sock that he <laughs> puts in people's mouths, but it had been a uh, yeah, a nerve hold used as a finisher for right. two years at that point. So there was some history, and uh, we didn't know when we I did the sock it was going to lead to anything beyond that day. So when Vince Russo came up to me the next night in Detroit, he's like, "Bro, you got the sock." I was like, "I don't know." It's, it turned out he's in my bag. You know, he, they're chanting for him. They got signs <laughs> for him. Uh, bro, you got the socks. If I couldn't just draw another one, you know, and uh, yeah, and uh, we were onto something. So I think it was like the second night uh, after that. I just thought, hey, I'm a guy known for, you know, this claw hold. I, apparently, people like me with a sock puppet, <laughs> and we put the two together. It was like the Reese's peanut butter cup of wrestling finishing holds. <laughs> and did you ever reuse the same sock, or did you do a new one each week, or how? Well, the first few weeks it was. Sock, and then uh, you know, uh, with uh, with the exception of Al Snow, I was quickly becoming the least popular guy in the dressing room. <laughs> uh, uh, as long as Al was there, that first spot was kind of secure. But then I just realized, you know, not only is it proper respect, you know, to your opponents to have a clean sock, but it kind of gave me something to do after the match. You know, you throw the thing in the crowd, and people would dive for it like it was a you know 
seventh <laughs> the <laughs> holy grail yeah. run. Yeah, that's so yeah. great well we kind of talked about you and taker and you and rock but there's one other program that you an ongoing feud that i thought was arguably one of your best and that was of course with with triple h you convert back to cactus jack for that street fight at the rumble and then of course the what was at the time thought to be your retirement match the the hell in the cell there at no way out yeah. what was it yeah. what was that street fight like because you guys brought out the barbed wire the tax what did triple h's rivalry mean to your career where does that sort of rank yeah it was it was really big for both of us because uh, um, I had been really banged up, you know, poor. I was almost immobile. With my knees were so bad, and then uh, Triple H had great success with um, DX, but this was like his, you know, time to prove that he belonged at the top of the card as a singles wrestler. So it gave me a chance to go out the way that I wanted to go out, and gave Triple H a chance that to prove that he could be that, uh, you know, that you know that he could you know, carry the company on his shoulders. And so that's when things are working best, when both people uh, come out ahead. So we had those two, you know, kind of legendary matches, and uh, and both of us look back on it like uh, as if, you know, not as if we look back on it uh, as uh, one of the best rivalries we were involved with. Absolutely. And speaking of how you sort of went to Cactus Jack, you obviously did the three phases of Foley. What inspired you to kind of go back and forth between Cactus Jack, Mankind, Dude Love? And, and you know, Mankind always has sort of had a screw loose anyway, so it kind of made sense that you do the split personality thing, I guess. Well, you know, a lot of credit goes to Mr. McMahon. Uh, and, and the truth is, if Mr. McMahon... Uh, thought I looked like a star going in and didn't think I looked sleazy, then I would have come in as Cactus Jack and there never would have been an evolution of character. <laughs> but because he thought that covering up my face would be my only way uh, into the company, uh, and then later realized I had a you know an interesting backstory, not only as Cactus Jack, but that I'd had this character dude love, uh, you know, as a teenager, <laughs> uh, he really thought he you know, it would be that fans would love that uh, that journey. And uh, I remember him getting a, you know, give me a phone call like 8 a.m. Very thoughtful of him. That's 8 a.m. on a weekend. Like, hey, Bell, how'd you like to be dude love? And uh, he liked seeing my dreams come true, and fans enjoyed it. So it was uh, it was fun, and you know, I get triple the royalties on action figures. So it's, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I know we're coming up against the clock, so final couple questions. But you mentioned your early days and, you know, um, where you had that character. I remember seeing videos of you jumping off garages, doing the snooka splash that you had. I think you hitchhiked to Madison Square Garden, right? Um, yeah, I did. I sure did. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I, I bring all this up because I, I remember reading your memoirs. I think you, if not the first, one of the first, and this was before the Internet, but it was sort of that groundbreaking behind-the-scenes look, and you, you published several memoirs, and I just remember page turn and flipping that thing and just talk about sort of how influential you think those books were and peeling the curtain back uh, before the internet took off yeah yeah um and there was some concern about how honest i was in the book and uh, my thought was always uh, people are going to respect wrestling and wwe more when they're finished than they do when they begin and i think that was almost universally the case you know i respected people's intelligence i didn't try to portray wrestling as something it wasn't and I knew that the uh, that the facts were often, usually, stranger than fiction. So, hey, we didn't, you know, we didn't know what we had on our hands. You know, I wrote it in 50 days in longhand, uh, almost 200,000 words, and 
and it just turned out I had a conversational style that people liked, and uh, you know, kind of opened the floodgates for wrestling books. So I guess, in a sense, I can both take credit for some of the success and and be the guy to blame for some of the bad ones. But uh, <laughs> I think another alarming thing, in a good way, is that uh, so many wrestlers then realize, hey, I can actually write my own book. And right. I'm not knocking football, basketball, baseball, but I, I think it'd be very rare, you know, at the time it was thought to be just ludicrous that any athlete or performer would write their own book. Right. You know, it's usually as told to or just done with a ghostwriter who does all the writing, sure. 100% of the writing. And in some cases, the uh, the actor, athlete, performer has very little to do with what actually comes out. So it was seen as being really strange, but there's got to be at least 10 wrestling books that have been actually written almost 100% with the help of an editor, of course, you know. I mean, otherwise my punctuation... <laughs> 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 And then I, I fell in love with the semicolon to the point where uh, the editor actually knew, like, all right, just leave some of the semicolons, even if they're not used correctly. <laughs> just like seeing them out there. That's his signature. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, in one sense, one sense it uh, you know, inspired people to, you know, to go after their dreams and inspired some of the other wrestlers to write their own books. And in my case, it open up doors for me to try different things. And uh, even though I've failed at far more things than I've uh, succeeded in, you know, a couple big successes goes a long way, and everything will be done with uh, passion and, uh, you know, a firm belief in what I'm doing. Well, before you go, could you give us a, a cheap pop of what you might sound like here in Washington, D.C.? Oh, like, hey, it's great to be right here in Washington, D.C. Mick Foley. So I can't think of a better way to close it than just saying, have a nice day. Have a nice day. Thank you, sir. All right, have a nice day. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.